Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul's second missionary journey continues, but we also see the fellowship and love of the disciples as they remember the Lord's Supper with the breaking of bread and drinking of the cup. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 20, verse 1. The title of the message is, Remember Me. All right, Acts chapter 20. Writing experts have said that good fiction is like real life, but with the boring parts left out. The Bible, however, is not fiction. (laughs) So there are sections of the Bible that seem mundane at times. They will describe events that may not be the most exciting of events. And while we're reading, it can be tempting to brush over portions that seem insignificant. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at a teaching or at a conference somewhere and you hear the word delivered and you just go, I've probably read that chapter or those verses a hundred times and I've never gotten out of it what that person did. Every word of scripture is inspired, Jesus said. And if God included it, then it's necessary for us to be mature believers. And so in Acts chapter 20, what seems like just a travelogue actually becomes a beautiful snapshot of what it was like to go to church back then, what it was like to be in a church service back then. And one of the most important parts of the early church services was the Lord's Supper. And so as we spend some time digging into why the Lord's Supper was such an important part of the early church, may the Lord help us to obey his command to remember him in our own celebration. So chapter 20, verse 1. Now, remember the context is they've just had this massive riot in Ephesus, but the Lord has delivered Paul. No harm has come to anyone. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 20, Now after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there he abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria to go home, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia so Peter of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius and Derby, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus or Tychicus, and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. So again, it starts off as a travelogue, and you kind of, you know, as you're reading, it'd be easy for your mind to get a little bit numbed with all the places and all the people, and you kind of think, okay, just kind of showing us how they got from here to there. But there's a wealth of stuff here that is fascinating, to me at least, and I hope to you as well. It mentions here that after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them. The word there means to draw oneself into an embrace with another, either in greeting or farewell. The idea here is that Paul genuinely loved these people. You know, he'd spent two years ministering to these folks, and he genuinely loved them. They were as much a part of his spiritual health as he was to theirs. Paul didn't think of himself, well, I've got to come in here, and I've got to spend two years in Ephesus, and, you know, hang out with these people, and then I've got more work to do elsewhere. Very often, it's easy to get caught up in what we're doing and to forget that the ministry is about people, right? About people. I'm, by nature, not a people person. I like me, but 
It's other people that bother me. And I remember I was, I think I was 16 or 17 and, I was, you know, I was real active in my church and I was hanging out with the pastor and, and, uh, and I said to him, I said, you know, I love the church. It's just people I don't like. I like serving. I just don't like people. And he kind of looked at me funny and he's a good, very mature man. And he looked at me funny and he said, you realize that Jesus died for people. He didn't die for a ministry. He didn't die for a building. And that stuck with me. And I realized that I needed to change. And over the course of the next four or five years, you know, many times I would be on my face saying, God, work in my life that I would really love people like you do. That I'd really like people like you do. Something happened at Bible college. A lot of times I'd hear people say, you know, well, well, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you, you know? And I think to myself, I don't think Jesus, as the nails were being pounded into his wrists, was saying, Lord, I love them. I don't like them, so forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There was a genuine attraction that Jesus just had to people. He just loved being around them. And even those times when people were being knuckleheads, you know, he would groan in his spirit and he'd go, oh, wicked generation, because here he is, the perfect God with the perfect love who knows that all things are working together for God's purposes, and yet he sees us running around in a rat race and just, oh. sometimes, you know, he's thinking, if they only knew, if they'd only just trust me. And yet he genuinely loved being around people. He loved us intimately and intensely, so much so that he sweat great drops of blood in the garden there as he agonized about the cross. Paul, he loved people the very same way. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 22, it's got that big, huge section. You're familiar with it where it says, the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The idea is that we're all apart. We all have different parts of the body and we all need each other. And Paul needed them as much as they needed him. See, God didn't design us to be alone. He designed us to be connected. We need each other. So let's love each other, right? Let's love each other, right? <laughs> well, after he embraced them, it says he departed to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. Now, the parts that are mentioned here would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and some of the other places that Paul had been prior to this. He also spent some time in Troas because of an awesome opportunity to share Christ there. But these few words here at the end of verse 1 and, and verse 2, um, it actually encompasses an entire year of Paul's life. An entire year of Paul's life were spent in this time in Troas and Macedonia. And it's during this time period that he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. And as promised in chapter 13 of that letter, he makes his way to Corinth to visit them for three months. And so verse 3 here it says that he abode there in Greece for three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. So Paul spends this year in Europe and then three months he goes into Greece as well. And remember, he almost quit in Corinth. Remember when he first got to Corinth? Because of all the pressure, the animosity that the Jews had towards him. So having heard that he was back in town, uh, that he planned to take a ship on, uh, on the way home to Syria, back to Antioch, his home church, they plotted to kill him. I don't know if they were you know, plotting to throw him overboard when the boat got to sea. We don't know exactly what was going on. But thankfully, Paul got wind of their plan and he changed his own plans to go back north on foot with the goal of meeting his team at Troas. And so verse four, it says, and there accompanied him into Asia. So these are men that, went, that were gonna be a part of his team going back to Jerusalem. It says, so Peter of Berea, 
and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going beforehand, before he left by foot, they stayed there and waited there for us at Troas. Now, if this seems like a large team, there's a reason why there was a large team. It was a special mission they were going on. See, the church of Jerusalem was struggling financially. Remember, they had all things common, right? They sold everything and had all things common. And that works if Jesus is coming back in a few months. But what happens when all the money runs out because everybody sold anything and no one's generating any more income? You have no more money. And so the church at Jerusalem was extremely poor. It was well-intended, but poorly executed. It was very gracious and very giving that they wanted to sell their stuff and help each other out and have all things common. But that's not how God's plan for the church works. You can read it on your own time, but I believe it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where it mentions that God blesses some with more than they need. And then they can help those out who don't have what they need, so everyone has enough. Doesn't mean everyone has the same. It means everyone has enough. And that was always God's plan. For those that had those fields in the Old Testament, remember? They would go glean their fields and they would drop some things along the way. He would leave them there, leave them there for the poor of the land. And then they would have to come out after the gleaning was done and they'd pick that up and they would have what they need. Everybody didn't have the same. They would have what they needed. That's God's plan. I've had times in my life when I've been on both sides of that coin, where you're in need and praise the Lord for others who blessed us. And then there's times where you saw other people who were in need and we were able to help them out. It's a huge, huge blessing to be able to do that. But God's intent is is for us to be generous in that sense that everyone has what they need. But if you have no one who's making excess, (laughs) then no one can help out those who have a need. And as a result, the church in Jerusalem really struggled. So Paul, he had charged all the Gentile churches to take up a collection to help them out. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, he talks about this. He says here, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, put aside some and store it up, As God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come, no collections when I come. Paul didn't want to take up the offering when he was there. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your gifts unto Jerusalem. And if it be fitting or meet that I go also, they shall go with me. And that's what ended up happening. So they ended up going with him and they were bringing their offering. Each church sent a representative with their gift to the church at Jerusalem. Now, this financial gift will become a big part of why Paul faces hostility in Jerusalem because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, isn't it? You know, remember when Paul's in prison, it mentions that, I think it was Felix, one of the the Roman, you know, higher ups. He kept him in prison, hoping that Paul would seek to bribe him to get out because he knew he had had this massive amount of money. So word spreads that it's a large amount of money and, and different groups are coveting it. But the crazy thing is Paul didn't have any money. He wasn't a part of any of the collection process. It was entrusted to all of these team members. And you know, (laughs) I had a pastor once tell me and said, he asked me, he said, well, you know, do people give in your church? And I said, well, I'm assuming so. And he said, well, you don't know who gives what in your church? I said, no, that's not for me to know. Well, how do you know if people are tithing or not so you can rebuke them if they're not? (laughs) Paul made it important of having a team handle the financial business of the church. 
never an individual and certainly not him. It provides accountability. It keeps the finances from being concentrated in the hands of an individual who could be tempted by self or manipulated by others. It's important. I've always tried to have a rotation of people who count so they don't know who's giving consistently either. Because you know what happens? You start looking at people differently. I remember I had one of our elders once said, he said to me, he said, Will, he said, he said, you know, you'll be surprised by who the big givers are and who the small givers are. Because you just don't know. And I never want to be tempted to treat anybody differently. So I don't know what you give and never will know what you give. And, uh, and that's just how it's going to be. Well, it moves on. It says that these going beforehand uh, waited for us at Troas, verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. You know what? Actually, I need to touch one more point because this gets me. All right. It mentions there, we read in the text when Paul talked about the gathering, he says, those that God has prospered, set it aside as he's led them, right? There's no pressure there, right? There's no sense of, well, you know, if you haven't given, you know, write your check or this. There's this sense of, you know, as the Lord has put it on your heart and, and as, as God has done that, you be faithful and you be obedient, you be generous for him, right? Giving's a blessing. And unfortunately, there are times when the church has made it not a blessing, but they've made it a burden. The Bible says God loves a hilarious, a cheerful giver, someone who just does it with a joy in their heart because they want to give. You know, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I always want our giving here at our church to be about that. I want it to be about, yes, it's about obedience. Yes, it's about stewardship. God commands us to to give. I understand all that, and and that's been ingrained into me. I get it all there. I understand it, and the idea is you need to be faithful with that. But God's desire is it's part of our worship, right? It's not just something we do. Hand over the check. Here's the paycheck. Hand over the check to the church. Got to keep the pastor fed. The idea is, Lord, you've blessed me with everything that I have, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little. And Lord, here's a portion back to you to confess and say that I believe that with all my heart. It's all yours. It's all yours. And I want to yield my finances to you. Lord, is there anyone here that I can help out? Is there anyone here that I can bless? Is there anyone here I can serve? Is there any ministry I can serve? You know what blew me away? We raised over $600 on Sunday night for those Bibles. And that's because the Lord touched people's hearts and they gave generously. That's awesome. That is awesome. We are going to impact and directly change lives because God put it on the hearts of people to be generous and they were obedient and they did it. And probably that gives you joy now. If you were a part of that, or if you've been praying for that, that gives you joy to hear that because you think, wow, I'm a part of something that the Lord's doing and, 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 and that's gonna be there. You know, the Bible talks about even you know, a glass of, of water that's given to a prophet, that there's a reward in that. It's, it's not about how much, it's not about you know, you know, being grounded into submission. It's about generosity. It's about love. It's about just saying, Lord, all I have is yours. What do you want me to do with it? I'll be faithful and obedient to you. Well, verse six, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them in Troas in five days. So that's how long it took them to sail. And we stayed there where we abode, it says, for seven days. So they stayed here in Troas for seven days. And verse seven, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and he continued his speech until midnight. And so here was interesting, again, it just seems like a travelogue, but we actually get a glimpse into what an early Christian service looked like. Now, the first thing it mentions here, it says that they met upon the first day of the week. Now, the service was held not in Sunday morning, but in Sunday evening, because Sunday was a work day in that culture, in that time period. Now, this is the first mention in the book of Acts that the church gathered together on Sundays. Now, I want to make it clear here, there is no right or wrong day to gather as Christians. Sunday has been the traditional day that we have gathered here, but there are some churches that can't meet on a Sunday. There's some churches that meet on a Sunday afternoon because they can't get a building on Sunday morning. There's nothing wrong with that. I remember when one of the local churches started a church service on, be careful here, Monday night. Yeah, that's what everybody in the church I was at thought. Listen, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, okay? It's not the Christian Sabbath, all right? Every day is a Sabbath for us since we rest in Christ's finished work on the cross. Every day. Now, God made the Sabbath for man, so it's a good idea to take one day, put the hammock up, and chill out, okay? That's a good principle. Our bodies need rest. Our minds need rest. A day where you don't think about work, a day where you hang out with family, a day where you just chill, okay? We need that, all right? But... As far as the fulfillment of the commandment to keep the Sabbath, we keep it every single day as we rest in Christ's finished work on the cross for us. So, but this is when the early church met. And it mentions they came together to break bread. Now, what they would do in the early church is they would celebrate something known as the agape feast or the love feast. It was a big, huge church-wide potluck is all it was. Everybody bring food and they'd all, you know, eat and fellowship. So it's biblical, so... It is, it is. Christians eat and hang out. That's, that's biblical. So, you know, and, and the reason for that is, and you've probably, you've been well taught, you know, Pastor Gibb, I'm sure for many years explained to you the significance of eating in the Middle Eastern culture, the idea that I'm eating the same big loaf of bread and I rip a piece off and I give it to you and then I eat some. And the idea that's being conveyed is we're becoming one because the same food that's nourishing you is nourishing me. And there's an intimacy there. And so the idea of eating and fellowship, they do go hand in hand because of how the Middle Eastern mindset is concerning eating. You know, it's very serious. So they would gather every Sunday evening and they would have this church-wide potluck and then they would close it up by celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, most believe, most commentators believe that early Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper after every evening meal. They would just do it in their families. At some point in time in the church, the Lord's Supper became this sacerdotal thing, you know, where it could only be administered by a priest or a pastor. But some of the most intimate times in my marriage have been when me and Bev have sat down, and I, I play guitar, and I'd get my guitar out, and we'd sing a few worship songs, and I'd have a, a piece of bread and have a little cup of juice, and, and we would remember what the Lord did for us on the cross. It's awesome, you know? There's, you don't need to be in an environment, you know, where there's some officiant who's there who's qualified to do it. Acts 2.42 says that the breaking of bread was a regular celebration in the church and that it contributed to their growth as believers. Which got me thinking, why is that? Why is celebrating the Lord's Supper? We do it once a month here. Why is it that it's an essential part of our growth as believers? Well, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Now, the first thing I want to mention 
about the Lord's Supper is there's nothing mystical that happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are not ingesting the power of Christ. You know, you're not eating the bread and drinking the cup and all of a sudden becoming super Christian. The pagans have that idea of food. You know, that, that remember when Daniel wouldn't eat the food that, that the, the king had, had prepared for, for him and his friends, you know, that were in training? Why is that? It was food that was offered to their pagan idols. And the food was considered to be infused with the power of these pagan deities. And so you would have extra super smarts and extra super intelligence, which, by the way, be very, 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 very careful. I see Christians get into these dieting things where they get all overboard and that's their entire life. Listen, that's nothing but food offered to idols again. It's this idea that all of a sudden I can be in this perfect physique and shape where nothing wrong will ever happen to me health-wise because I'm eating perfectly. I have seen some of the people who, who eat that way and then tragedy comes to their life. There's no promise and there's no guarantee. Now, don't take what Pastor Will just said as an excuse to go be a pig, you know, and, and to, to be a glutton. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying everything in its proper place, right? Everything in order, Right? You know, everything in order. Because all, if, if we're not careful, that can become our new deity. And that's not what God wants for us. It's the same thing with exercise. What did Paul tell Timothy? Hey, exercise profits a little. It's not that it's no good. It's just not the most good. The best good is your relationship with Christ. And then exercise a little. Or a lot. But not at the expense of your walk with God. So, you know, the reason I bring this up is because you go to Christian bookstores today and you know, half the shelves are filled with what? Yeah, it's all, I'm like, I saw a sign the other day. And, and if you know this person or you are this person, my, my deepest apologies, I'm not trying to offend you. But they're holding up a sign in a road and it said, you know, uh, Jesus is coming back. The world is, or I mean, the, uh, the debt for the United States is at, you know, four trillion or whatever number it is now. You know, and I thought, well, I praise the Lord. They're bold and they're out there telling people about they need to repent and get right with Jesus. But what does the United States debt have to do with the gospel? I'm thinking you are turning people away for absolutely no reason. You're not offending them with the gospel. You're offending them with your conservative values. And Jesus, I, I, you know, every time Jesus tried, they try to wrangle him into a political conversation. What did he do? He sidestepped it perfectly. What about taxes? Or maybe, you know, whose picture's on here? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. <laughs> you know, he just sidestepped. Every time they tried to wrangle him into this thing that everybody would get mad about and would polarize and you all of a sudden would be declared on a side. And Jesus brought it right back to God. Brought it right back to what really mattered, didn't he? You know, I just wonder sometimes how distracted we are and what we lose because of it. I wonder what I've lost because of it. Opportunities to relate to people, to converse with people. So we aren't ingesting the power of Christ like the pagans thought towards the food they offered to idols. Uh, Jesus taught us to do this in remembrance of him. So let's turn to Luke 22. Luke 22. In verse 19 it says, and he took bread and he gave thanks, broke it, and gave unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. 
This do in remembrance of me. Now, when Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians, he adds to that the cup. He says, do this in remembrance of me as well. The phrase remembrance, it means to call me affectionately to your memory. I love that. To call me affectionately to your memory. You ever had a song come on that maybe reminds you of your husband or your wife or your kids, and all of a sudden you call some affectionate memories to your mind? That's what's kind of being thought of here. Now, why is that? Why does he say, do this to call me affectionately back to your memory? Well, it's because we have a tendency to forget. (laughs) See, God commanded Israel, remember, to put his word everywhere, to put it on their wrists, on their foreheads. They'd have it strapped around their foreheads with a little box and they could pull out the box and read it and, you know, pull open the box and read the scripture and then put it back in and strap it back around their head. And they would have it. He said, put it in your house. and, And when you rise up and when you sit down, wherever you go, you can talk about this to your children and to your your family and your friends. And the reason was is so they wouldn't forget. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong.